0: Last week we began a series uh, going through uh, not only what Advent is, but what Advent is supposed to mean. Some of the, we could say, the elements of Advent, the ingredients of Advent. And we saw last time how the first sort of ingredient, if you will, uh, of this season is the season of waiting. And how God's people from, uh, from ages long gone have always been a people who have been invited to wait on the Lord, to wait on his timing, to wait on what he has promised, to wait on his word. And of course, as we saw last time, this often proves very difficult, not only because we're not good at waiting, but also because we don't very much like it. <laughs> waiting often feels frustrating, and sometimes it can even feel futile, as if we're waiting on something that may never arrive. But the word of God, the word of God's promise, if you will, is that which it gives us, it instills in us, and invites us to have certainty, and yes, confidence even, in to trust the words of God over against the words of man. In fact, one way that you can look at the scriptures that you have in front of you as, is if it's one extended invitation for you and I to put our faith in the one for whom nothing is impossible. And sometimes that's... Difficult to do because the surrounding circumstances often uh, gets more of our attention than what God's word does. But nevertheless, God's word invites us to trust him and not the circumstances. To trust him and not man's word. That's what this story of the Bible has to tell us. That's the point of it. God is, is is longing for everyone to come to a knowledge of him, to yes, put their trust in him. Even if that means, if we will, he has to tear open the heavens in order for us to get the point. Which kind of brings us to consider the second part or the second movement of this Advent season, which I have entitled, The Appearing. You'll notice if you have your finger there, turn to Titus chapter number 2. This is the text that we, that we were spending a lot of time in last week. And we will do so uh, this morning and also next week. But you'll notice the same word appears in three different instances in Titus 2 and also chapter 3. Notice Titus 2 verse 11. Where Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And jump down to verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And jump down to chapter number three, look at verse four, the same word you'll notice again appears, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. The same word in each of these verses, that word appeared or appearing occurs each time. And it's suggestive, it's sort of, it's sort of get, supposed to get into our mind's eye, this idea of this sudden manifestation or the sudden revelation of the Son of God in the flesh. It's that word, that very spiritual word, His incarnation. When we talk about The Son of God appearing uh, into this realm, into this world, we are saying that he became incarnate. And as Paul would later say in the book of Philippians, that he was born in the likeness of men. This, indeed, is the truth that we can say that changes everything. That when Jesus appears, and when he shows up, when he becomes embodied in flesh and blood, it signals a decisive turning point in the history of the universe. You could say, think about it, when Jesus was born, things were one way, and then when he appeared, everything else changed. And this is reflected... And many of the songs that we sing this time of year, one of our favorites, "O Holy Night, what does the lyrics to that song say? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You can understand that as we sing this, we are talking about this decisive turning point in the history of the world. And indeed much If not all of the the, you know the lore and the tradition around Christmas time centers on this very theme, this theme of Jesus being born. And it would be pretty time consuming, I would imagine, if we were to try and tally all of the hymns and and all of the carols and all of the poems and all of the little short stories that mention Jesus' birth. And this of course is not by accident. Since some of the earliest confessions of the church throughout the centuries have always had Jesus' appearing, his taking on of flesh as their very foundation. And in fact, turn with me a couple pages backwards to uh, 1 Timothy chapter number 3. First Timothy chapter number 3, you'll notice Paul talking to one of his other protégés, being the, uh, the pastor of Ephesus, Timothy here. He gives them this word, this word in verse number 16 of chapter number 3, which is often considered one of the earliest confessions that the church would make. Notice what he says, 1 Timothy 3.16. As Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, referring to Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. There's this, there's this thrust of truth that Paul sort of explodes here. And it begins, you'll notice, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He appeared in a flesh and blood body. But even you can go to all of the, of the creeds that perhaps you're familiar with. One of the most famous, of course, is the Apostles' Creed, perhaps one of the earliest sort of public creeds of the church. And how does it begin? Quote, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Or go a couple hundred years later, to the year 325, and we have the creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed which begins, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father from before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Or you could go a couple hundred years after that to the year 451 and the Creed of Chalcedon at that other council. And they begin this way, We then teach men to confess our Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. You could go through centuries and decades of church history and you'll find that this truth is the truth that grounds the people of God. That it is also the truth that has served as the, the sort of locus of much debate in the church as well. And in fact. The Gospel of John, and indeed John's own writings—First, Second, and Third John—have as sort of their launching off point this very dilemma. As those in the early in the early days of the church were calling into question this idea that Jesus is the Son of God and that He had two natures in one. Much of the writing uh, uh, from the church and from the Apostle John is for this very purpose not only to defend, but to establish and to solidify for the church's belief that when we say Jesus appeared, we mean very, in fact, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came down in human form. All of which to say that this, that we're talking about this morning, Jesus' appearing, its not a secondary thing it's not ancillary to our faith it's not something that we can just uh, shove into the background the very fact that the son of god as john writes john 114 uh, took on flesh and dwelt among us is not a belief that is easily discarded nor i would even say is it a doctrine that should sh- sit on the on the shelves uh, just be awaiting uh, uh, to be taken out every christmas it's not a, a belief for the sidelines. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that very famous chapter in Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, Paul makes the argument that if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead, he says that our faith is futile and we are of all people most to be pitied. He is essentially saying that without the resurrection, there is no church, there is no faith. There's nothing that we have to believe in. But I think we could and we very well should confess the very same thing regarding Jesus' birth, his appearing. The resurrection and the incarnation are these twin pillars that bolster our faith, that solidify everything that we believe in. So indeed, far from being just something to sing about when we get to December 1st, Jesus' appearing, Jesus' birth is central to everything that we believe. One writer put it this way. At the very center quote of the Christian faith is the supreme mystery. That the word became flesh. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God participates unreservedly in the same human nature that we ourselves possess. Yet, Without sin, This is the good news that we sing about, that we preach about, that we love at this time of year. But the point is, the point I would love to stress for you this morning, is that the good news of Christmas doesn't belong to a month on the calendar. The good news of Christmas is, of course, what we often think of. It's the angel coming down to the shepherds. Luke 2, what does he say? The very famous verses? Luke 2.10. sought after this long-awaited Messiah, the one that all of Israel was waiting for, was pining for, was now here. And get the juxtaposition. The Savior of the world is here in the form of a little baby in a manger. Totally unexpected. But this is the good news that we have. The good news that, yes, indeed, does not belong just uh, for December just for our Christmas holidays. this story that we're all familiar with. I'm sure you've heard the, the Christmas story uh, th- uh, several hundred times. Perhaps. Maybe. Maybe not. You know the story though. You know all the beats of it. How Mary and Joseph and, and the census and, and that little town of Bethlehem. And, and how there was no room for them in the inn. And all those, those sorts of details. And yet, despite how familiar we are with the story, I wonder how often we consider what it all means. Have you ever stopped, and instead of just racing on to the story of Christmas, stopped and considered, what does it mean that the Son of God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us? Or or more specifically to our text this morning, what does it mean that the grace of God has appeared, has manifested? Well, I think it means three things. Three things that I want to show you this morning of what it means that the Son of God appeared. Number one, I would like to say that it means that man's problem is elevated, man's problem is elevated. I think one of the things that's often lost on us when we sing about Jesus' birth is just the very fact that he is born into a world that is filled with darkness and with gloom. His appearing occurs in a world that is beset by havoc and chaos. And it's evident even in some of our very famous and very familiar carols. I think of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the words to that first verse go like this. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou Dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. See, we think about that as this... Cheerful, perhaps, longing, hopeful song of Jesus' birth, but it, laden within that song is the very confession that our world is gloomy and is full of night and full of darkness, that needs dispersing. Is see, inherent in our singing about Jesus' birth? is that very fact that He arrives in a world that is dark? That is full of mourning, a world that is grieving, a world that is aching. That sort of, again, another juxtaposition that happens at Christmas time is that the joy of it, the joy of Jesus' birth that we love to sing about is set against this backdrop of sin and death. Because Jesus is born into that world, a world that's broken, a world that's Inhabited by sinners and cheaters and thieves and beggars. It's a world full of wrecks and wretched sinners. It's a world that again that's broken, and it's desperate for healing. As it says in Romans chapter 8, that all of creation is groaning for a redeemer. And that's who Jesus is. He comes as that very person. He comes as Zechariah prayed, as the lights to those who sit in darkness. And this, I think, is what Advent is so important. And why it's so important is because it invites us to remember that the Son of God did not appear for people who had everything together. He didn't come down and save those who had all of their ducks in a row and who had everything put together. Actually, he came down for those who had wrecked and ruined their lives to the point of no return. And I think this is difficult for us to admit. It's hard, oftentimes. To admit that we are somehow deficient or that we are somehow inadequate or somehow that we are incapable of living up to what God says, living up to that higher standard, if you will. But this is exactly what we are confessing when we sing about Jesus' birth. We are confessing that the problem of sin is so severe that it necessitates that it requires nothing short of the arrival of God in order to fix it. That's what this whole season is trying to get us to think about, to remember, and to consider. Advent makes, bl- makes it blindingly clear that, that man cannot remedy man's problem. Not by a long shot. No man or woman, no entity, no committee, no policy, no piece of legislation. Can ever solve the problem of sin. It doesn't matter who's in the office. We are not the heroes. We are the ones who get saved. We are all, if you want to think about it this way, we are all the damsels in distress. We're not the heroes. The problem of sin can only be solved by God taking on flesh just like us. And why is that so important? Because how he saves us is that he has that flesh torn to shreds and that blood poured out for us on a cross. You see, this is the incarnation, the appearing of the Son of God in this place of death, in this place of darkness... It makes all other notions of salvation by any other means just completely absurd. Our problem is elevated. Why? Because our problem is so serious that God had to come down and remedy the problem by himself. That's how severe our problem of sin is. And in fact, if you want to get a very graphic picture, God had to rend the heavens so that he could be where we are, so that he could save us and redeem us and rescue us to where he is. And I'm not just making that up. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 64. This is... A very picturesque prayer of the prophet Isaiah who prays on behalf of all the people that God would do just that. He would tear open the heavens, that he would split the sky. Notice Isaiah 64 verse 1. Oh, that you, that you, Lord, would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence That's the only hope that sinful, wretched, sordid man has. The only hope is the fact that God would rend, open the heavens, that he would split the sky, and that he would come down. And the point is this, is that when we read about how Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, that's exactly what happened. That very prophecy of the skies being split open, if you will, and the Son of God coming down is being fulfilled right here when little, little Mary is giving birth to a little baby boy, the eternal Son of God, the one who had no beginning and has no end. He comes down into this very problematic world in order to rescue and redeem problematic sinners like you and like me. That's what Advent is supposed to get us to think of, to consider, that man's problem is elevated. But likewise, number two, I want to say that Advent reminds us, the appearing reminds us, that God's standard is endorsed. God's standard is endorsed. Because this appearing that we've been talking about, this sudden manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh, is this this revelation of the one who is outside of space and time, within space and time itself. Which is a fact that should blow our minds. This is a fact that we uh, rightly could never really comprehend. It should leave us speechless. But more to the point, I would like to say that this appearing of the Son of God in the flesh is accomplished so that we might be saved. You might notice that. If you go back to Titus chapter 2 and look at verse 11. And notice how it's always on the heels of this appearing is this announcement of salvation. Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Or Titus 3, look at verse, look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And I think it's crucial to understand both of these points and how they are intertwined, how they relate to one another. Because Jesus is appearing and our hope of salvation are uniquely connected. And what do I mean by that? I mean just that The Son of God, when he comes down, he doesn't appear as sort of an angel or a spiritual entity or some sort of heavenly being when he comes down. He comes down, as we referred to, in the likeness of men so that he could save men from themselves. The point is, he had a body. And now we can think about this, is that God in his grace saw humanity's hopeless and very much helpless state. And in his wisdom and in his providence, he became a human so that he could rescue humanity from eternal condemnation. This is exactly, and I keep referring to this particular reference, but flip over one page to Hebrews chapter 2. Because this is exactly the point that the writer of Hebrews is striving to get us to see that this is the only hope. Is that when the, the heavens were opened and God comes down in the person of Christ. That he comes down with flesh and blood. Notice Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. These verses are so Critical. Notice what he says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You get what he 's trying to tell you is that it couldn 't be any other way, it couldn 't be in any other form. He comes down in the likeness of men to be man 's savior. And he partakes in flesh and blood in order to deliver us as well from all of our sins. The Apostle Paul later or earlier in Galatians. Go with me there. Galatians 4 is the, the passage that we had spent a little bit of time on a couple of weeks ago. But Paul makes the same point as the writer of the Hebrews does. Galatians 4. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the the adoption as sons. You get this beautiful glimpse into the plan of God. That this incarnation, the incarnation of the Son of God, His appearing, His taking on of flesh in this world is not some sort of divine cheat code that allows sinners into the kingdom of God. God, this is, I think, the point that uh, this is ushering us to see, that is guiding us and leading us to notice, is that God did not give his law as a means of salvation, only to sort of devise some other way to get us to be saved, when he saw that we couldn't live up to the law's demands. God didn't send his son to this earth to sidestep the law, since no one can keep it. More to the point, the incarnation of the of, of God, the Son, is not a scheme by which God the Father is, quote, breaking the law for love. That's what a famous pastor said a few years ago. I won't mention his name. If you want to know, I'll tell you afterwards. He said, quote, God broke the law for love. And his example was that when your kid falls off the monkey bars and you don't and he, you know that your, your, your kid is severely injured and you put him in the car. You don't pay attention to the speed limit signs. You speed your way to the hospital. You break your law because you love your kid. And it sounds nice. It should get you emotional. But it's not what God did. God didn't break the law so that you could be saved. This is not what happened When God sent his son to take on flesh and blood and die for you. Actually, it's way, way better and way, way more significant. Is that when the son of God appeared, he subjected himself to every demand of the law. Fulfilling them all perfectly. Leaving not a single one of them undone or unfulfilled. He was born under the law. Christ was. And he lived perfectly according to it. So that when he died on the cross, his perfect record could be yours. He never once sinned. There was no blemish on his righteousness. And so now, as the infinite son of God, he gifts you an infinite record of righteousness. Not because he sidestepped God's standard. Not because he broke that standard just because he loved you so much. No, he fulfilled it and he fulfilled all of God's demand for holiness while at the same time fulfilling the fact that he loves you from before the foundation of the world. Both are upheld. So far from sidestepping or diminishing God's standard of holiness, Jesus appears and he endorses it. And this is how an infinitely holy God can remain perfectly just and perfectly holy, even while he justifies and forgives unholy and ungodly people. Because the standard's been met, and he still loves supremely. The appearing of the Son of God, you see, was not a contingency plan that God came up with after the fact Christmas is, is not this divine moment where God sort of sees our very sad and very sorry and very sinful estate and then he decides to activate his backup plan to redeem the world. Christ is not a, a break in case of emergency sort of deal. Rather what we see and what we learn at Christmas time, what we learn during these weeks of Advent is that this very moment that we're talking about, the appearing of the Son of God in the flesh is the culmination. It's the crowning revelation. It's the apex of God's plan to redeem the world, to redeem the cosmos from sin. A plan, by the way, that was put into motion from before the foundation of the world. And we're seeing it unfold when a little girl gives birth to a baby boy. When Jesus appears, we're getting a glimpse at the final and indeed the absolute revelation of who God is. Which brings me to point number three. That this appearing not only elevates man's problem, it doesn't, always, it doesn't also only endorse God's standard. But lastly, number three, it exposes God's heart. It exposes God's heart because in a remarkable way, we have to understand that Jesus' appearing, his manifestation in flesh and blood answers the question for us, what is God? like How would you answer that question? Just think about it for a second. What is God like? How would you how would you go about answering that? How would you describe who God is and what he's like? Your answer to that question, I think will reveal a lot about what you believe about the faith and about what it means to be a Christian. The very famous American pastor A.W. Tozer is quite famous for saying Quote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's on to something. What do you think about? when, When we say, describe God, what image pops into your mind? Some people, I think, imagine him to be some sort of vindictive tyrant. Others, in pop culture and other forms of media, he's a grumpy old geezer. Sometimes he's just this overbearing overlord who just wants to micromanage every single little thing that we do. And he's a buzzkill. He doesn't want us to have fun. Or some people think he's a disengaged dad. He just takes his hands off and he's letting the world spin into oblivion. It goes without saying that your faith will be enormously impacted by how you understand who God is and what he is like. And the point is is that Jesus appeared to show us exactly that. To not only tell us what God's like, but to show us what God is like. That's what he appears to do. He appears to give us, we could say, a flesh and blood profile of the very nature of who God is. In fact, Jesus' his own words, he declares this to us. John 12, 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Or John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. Jesus is essentially saying, you want to know what God the Father is like? You want to know what God, how, how God would interact with wretched, hum, wretched humans and creatures that deserve sin and death and punishment? Here I am. Just look at me and watch what I do. You see, Advent welcomes everyone. Advent welcomes everyone. To gaze upon a little newborn being swaddled by his mom and to know that that little baby being swaddled is none other than Yahweh in the flesh, both human and divine. And it is through him and him alone that we are invited to see and to know what lies in the heart of God. John tells us that. John, you can turn there if you want, but or you can mark it down, John 1 verse 18, this very, very famous and very influential prologue that John has to his gospel. He ends it with this: John 1, 18. "No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known." That's what Jesus has accomplished. He has made God known to us. He appears to declare who God is to us. And this this should be a point that we just revel in, that we rejoice in, that when Jesus comes down and takes on flesh, he didn't do so in order to change God's mind about how to deal with sinners. He didn't take on flesh to somehow turn God from being a grouchy old grump into being a gracious grandfather. That's not the mission. (laughs) Jesus took on flesh to reveal, to indeed we could say expose in detail exactly who God is and what he's like. He comes to reveal and to show forth the depths of God's heart. He didn't come to convince the Father to be merciful. He showed up to express that this has been the attitude of God from before the foundation of the world. That God has always been A gracious and a long-suffering and a forgiving God. Yes, even for the lost and the unworthy and the undone. As he says in John 1.14, he comes full of grace and truth. And he appears to show all of this in, in blinding contrast. He puts skin and bone to that declaration that he is a God full of grace and truth. So now we see that through Jesus alone we have the clearest picture of who God is. Of what he's like. Of, of what his character is. Of what his nature is. And rather than come down as some sort of gavel-wielding judge or, or sword-swinging warrior. God comes down as a baby. With feet and hands that reach out for his mom. He comes down in the most dependent and vulnerable form that anyone could ever imagine. Why? I think to show forth his solidarity with our weakness and his eventual death. One of my favorite writers, Horatius Bonner, he says in this book called The Christ of God, the cradle gives us God's thoughts of God. What God wishes us to know and think about himself. It shows us how accessible God is and how he wishes to be approached by us. It shows us how near he has come to us, how low he has stooped, how truly one with us he has become. It is God, the son of the living God, very God, who lies there. We see but helpless infancy, yet the mighty power of God is there. This is what Advent is supposed to get us to see, it's supposed to get us to consider. That when we talk about Jesus' birth, when we sing and read about how the grace of God has appeared, we are referring to this, this uh, uh, amazingly historical but his, history altering moment. When the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us so that he could live. Live healing the lost and repairing what's broken. And dying to establish the very same thing. That the lost and the broken, they have a rescuer. They have a redeemer. And it always begins right there in Bethlehem. With a little manger. That in it was placed a little baby who was none other than the king of kings and the lords of lords himself. And he is now coming down for you. This is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's about this very fact that the God of all, he not only visits us, but he dwells and he dies among us so that we might not die. Let us pray.